Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We are delighted this, this evening to be joined again by Christopher Cooper. So, Christopher, welcome. Thank you so much for coming back. Uh, lovely to be here again. And I'm joined by Steve as well. Steve, welcome. Thanks, Martin, and welcome back, Christabel. Christabel, for those who uh, didn't join us previously, please tell us about yourself, who you are and what you do. So I'm Christabel Cooper. I um, am currently Director of Research at the think tank Labour Together. But prior to that, um, I spent most of my career as a data analyst working for various retailers in the private sector. But um, I've always had an interest in political data, particularly um, since the 2015 general election, which I've got to admit came as something of a shock to me. And I just really wanted to understand from that point on, you know, why I'd got it wrong. What what was it that caused people um, to vote in the way they did? And so I spent the next few years um, getting some funding for some research that I did with a colleague who's a professor of maths at UCL. We uh, produced quite a lot of research and um, uh, analysis on Brexit. And I also co-wrote um, a report on the general election um, uh, defeat. Well, from a Labour point of view, defeat in uh, 2019. But finally made the move full time into politics very recently uh, with this new job as director of research at Labour Together. So I can't recall, Christopher, we spoke about this last time, but I'm actually a, um, for my sins, an ex-Lib Dem. So I used to um, do some policy work with them. And I, since um, 2020, joined Labour to come over the other side. So I, but I was involved with Labour around, around <laughs> 2015. So I'm, I'm a convert. <laughs> oh, I'm interested in the 2015 election and what you thought was going to happen very quickly before, so before we go into the... oh, oh I mean I thought I thought Ed Miliband was going to be prime minister and it was it was an absolutely terrible shock when that um when the exit poll came out and I was in a pub full of labor people and there was an audible gasp as the as the exit poll came out and the numbers flashed up on the screen and Really, I, prior to that point, I was a I was a Labour member at the time, but I hadn't been terribly actively involved, and I think that really prompted me to think a lot about my assumptions about what I understood about politics. And as a data analyst, the place that I went looking for those answers was was in data, and yeah, and and you can find it in data. You know, the report I wrote in I co wrote in twenty nineteen was very explicit about the fact that Labour's problems dated back much earlier than that, and a lot of the underpinnings could be seen in that election. That sort of loss of um, socially conservative, left leaning voters really you could start seeing it from round about that time onwards, really. Well, I know Martin's going to be interested in that stuff, but just to say that I recall at the time the Lib Dems thought they were going to get about 30 seats, and we all know how that turned out. So yeah. I think lots of people got to get, get, get elections wrong. <laughs> so, so mutual commiserations, yes. I'm going to just completely derail everything that we were planning to talk about because I would love dearly to hear about what you learned and how you sort of went on that journey to from... Um, thinking that Ed Miliband was good was going to win why sort of you thought that because I mean I'm, I must admit I was did not expect the I, I was expecting a conservative majority from that uh from that election and have the uh the betting receipts to, to prove it that I was like you know, 
you know, I think this is such a sort of obvious outcome to me. Um, but yeah, please tell tell me why you thought what you did and the journey that you've sort of since been on before we come and talk about the more uh, recent stuff. Um, well, I guess I just I I believe the opinion polls, um, and the opinion polls. There's certainly the headline voting intention uh, polls were fairly clear that Labour was at least going to form uh, a minority government. Um, there were a lot of people um, who looked a bit more closely at some of those numbers and particularly at the leadership numbers and pointed out that it's very, very unlikely that parties which are led by an unpopular leader or a leader who is less popular than the um, alternative uh, will win elections. So there are definitely signs that um, that the headline polls were wrong, but I, in my naivety and perhaps wishful thinking, um, chose chose to chose to believe in them. I mean, and certainly afterwards, I, I was kind of interesting that I, at that point, went completely the other way to most members. It seemed in Labour, in that I think it, it was it was the first time that I really appreciated the political genius of Tony Blair. And, you know, I hadn't particularly been a massive fan during the new Labour years, but I suddenly realised that it is really difficult for Labour to win elections and actually just appreciated the work, the effort. A lot of a lot of the things that he did in power that I, as a um, young progressive person, thoroughly disapproved of, I I. I started to understand a bit more about why he had done them. And I think, you know, for, for me, it was a, you know, I, I, I am that sort of middle-class graduate living in London who had assumed that everyone in the country more or less thought like me. And it was, it really was quite a big shock to, to, to discover that that wasn't true. And I, you know, I now look back on that and think, why, do, why on earth would I have thought that? But at the time, I think, I think, I think very much, I, I, I assumed that I was not a particularly abnormal voter. And um, yeah, it, it took looking in the data to realize that was true. Um, and I think it is interesting because of course, you know, the, the, the rest of the part or, or a large part of the party um, decided that in fact the problem was was not that uh, we had gone too far away from that median voter. That it was they they decided that in fact we hadn't gone far enough, and it was kind of an interesting experience for me to to have that sort of appreciation of Tony Blair at exactly the moment that everyone else decided to um, bury the hatchet in his back, as it were. And so you said that. Um, you looked in the data and you found the answers in the data. So what data did you look at specifically and what, crucially, were you also looking for in there? So the British election study um, is this absolutely fantastic set of publicly available data that you can just download um, from the internet. And it's um, they survey around about 30,000 people every few months or so um and you just have this absolute wealth of data um so they are some fairly standard questions that they ask you know each time that they that they run the survey so obviously headline voting intention but you get demographic data you get attitudes to all sorts of things from the death penalty to climate change and it is it is an absolutely great set of data to be able to understand 
the British electorate as it is rather than as as some of us might might want it to be. Was there anything sort of specifically that really sort of stood out to you and made you go because you, you touched on the um the more socially conservative and if I understood you correctly, the more socially conservative but economically interventionist voters have been sort of drifting away from Labour. So if I understood that correctly, that that's something that's, that that's, you that's, saw. That's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. And you could already see that from, from 2015, really, um, that we were doing... I mean, obviously, in each election, 2017 is an interesting one because, of course, Labour increased its vote share. But you could nevertheless see, even within that, that there were some places where the vote share had gone up by far less than in other places. And some places actually did go backwards. Um, and they were very much harbingers of what was to happen two years later in, in the Red Wall. It, those patterns were already observable, I think, at the time, if you if you were looking closely at it. I mean, that's been fantastic and hopefully, I think, brings us quite nicely up to um, the recent work that you've been involved in, which is on um, Stevenage Woman. So can you tell us about Labour Together's most recent sort of output or very recent output? Yeah, sure. So as part of the relaunch of, of Labour Together, we... Um, created a segmentation, a voter segmentation, which divided the electorate into six segments. So we we did run a 5,000 respondent uh, survey with YouGov. We used um, an algorithm to cluster those into groups of people with similar values and attitudes. So we asked, generally we were, we were trying to put people along either, uh, along two axes, one is a left-right economic axis. So, as you say, sort of people who are interventionist, people who would rather have a have a small state. So along an axis along those lines. And then another axis, which is kind of socially liberal to, to, to socially conservative. But we also looked at things like trust and political engagement. Um, so we ended up with these with these six segments. And two of them were very much core segments that you would expect to be very loyal either to, to Labour or to the Conservatives. So we had an activist left, left segment, which is very liberal, very left wing um, and unsurprisingly skews very heavily towards Labour. And then kind of equivalent on, on the right is this group we called the rural right, who are very right wing, very authoritarian and who skew heavily towards the Conservatives. And then we had two sort of slightly more competitive clusters on each side. So um, centrist liberals on the sort of more progressive side who are um, yeah, quite centrist in their economics, um, slightly liberal on, on the socially liberal to authoritarian axis. And then on the conservative side, we had what we call the English traditionalists who were also, they're, they're, they're pretty socially conservative, but just left less economically um, right wing than the rural right. But the two segments that we were really interested in were um, these two groups of very volatile voters. So one we called the patriotic left, and that's very much the kind of red wall voter that 
you know we've all heard about um and talked about a lot for very obvious reasons since 2019 so this is your socially conservative but left-leaning voter and um and you know as we made really clear in the report we you know there is no way to a Labour victory without winning a large proportion of those voters we are absolutely not saying that they're not important at all um, but what we did also find was this other group um, who we called disillusioned suburbans, um, a.k.a. Stevenage woman, um, who is very large group. In fact, the largest of all the clusters and um, particularly uh, we found a lot of them in uh, Labour Conservative marginals that, that we would need to win. Um, so this group is much more centrist in its view so this this is pretty much they pretty much represent the median voter so very slightly socially conservative um and uh left leaning but but you know looks very much like the exact middle of those of those axes but one thing about them is that they are politically disengaged so only for, uh, for, uh sorry that's not true um 40 of them didn't vote in the eu referendum and 46 percent of them didn't vote in the last general election but we felt that they were important simply because there's a lot of them even taking into account the fact that they don't vote they are a really crucial group particularly in in marginal constituencies and um what one of the things the reason that um that this segment got dubbed Stevenage women that they are slightly more likely to be women but also in all the focus that we've had on these red wall seats um you know and and you know as we as as, as we say it's we need to win back those red wall seats but ultimately there's only 30 or so of them that are actually in the in the red wall and labor would need to win over a hundred seats to get a majority so we're talking you know another 70 seats that are non-red wall seats that Labour would need to win and I think in all the discussion about the red wall sometimes that that rather got missed and so we've you know we, and the focus drifted away from very traditional bellwether seats like Stevenage which I think since its creation I believe in uh the early 80s has always voted with the winner of the general election so that's why uh that's kind of the origin of of Stevenage woman but we wanted to we wanted to kind of highlight the fact that in order to get a majority you do need to bring together different types of voter you do need to build some kind of coalition and i think we had got you know it was absolutely right that we did focus on those kind of socially conservative left-leaning voters initially because they were the ones that you know that whose whose defection to the tories really um caused the 2019 defeat but ultimately if we are going to sort of set our sights slightly higher than just simply getting back to where we were in 2017 then we do need other sorts of voter and actually we do need these very median middle of the road not particularly interested in politics um people in the disillusioned suburban group can you take this kind of almost like a step beyond the abstract so that you know we've talked about these kind of different groups and where they sit on various spectrums and turnout rates and all this sort of thing what are there 
day-to-day lives like? So you've mentioned Stevenages uh, sort of somewhere that they live. And what are the kind of, you know, the, the issues that are motivating them? You know, are they, how are they doing financially? What Tell us a bit about the, make it almost, a, you know, some flesh and blood people out of these sort of data. <laughs> Um, so Stevenage, uh, Stevenage woman is uh, likely to be in her mid forties. It's an economically insecure, financially insecure group, and we we measured that by things, by both objective and subjective measures. So we asked people um, whether they were feeling worried about their um, household finances. We asked them. Um, if they had a £300 emergency, how they would pay for it. So we combined that with some data that we um, held about them, including things like household income and housing tenure. So whether they owned their own houses, whether they owned it outright without a mortgage, or whether they um, rented it privately or, or, or through social housing. So we kind of built up a picture of, of economic insecurity. And this group was fairly economically insecure. In, in, interestingly, the patriotic left are the most insecure out of all of the six segments, but but um Stevenage woman is 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 not far behind. And I mean another another interesting thing about um this group was actually it was the most likely group um uh, had the highest number of people from ethnic minorities in it. So 25% of um of that segment were from an ethnic minority compared to a national average of 15%. And that's something that we really want to we want to do some more work in and understanding because there is, I think, quite a lack of understanding of how different um ethnic minorities vote. There's this sort of assumption that, you know, oh, they're all going to vote Labour, which is just simply not true. And um and yeah, and and there are de- and there are definitely and and also the assumption that it's just that it, there's this sort of homogenous lump of non-white people, which you know, aside from being patronising, is is just simply incorrect. So that's something that we want to think about as well. But yeah, with you know, this 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 segment is somebody who clearly doesn't pay a huge amount of attention to politics um and has you know and 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 is and is quite distrustful and 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 isn't you know doesn't i guess feel that that politics is working for them that their lives are quite hard and um yeah is 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 quite disengaged from 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 that process but on the other hand you know their their concerns are very much the concerns of of many people at the moment which is you know the economy cost of living the nhs um so kind of very day-to-day uh very day-to-day concerns um just worried about how they're gonna how they're gonna get through i guess and so what essentially should labor do so what is labor's current position with these voters how should labor then therefore sort of um go around securing their vote and specifically i'd really like to if you have any ideas on how can in this case labor sort of grab the attention of people who don't pay attention to politics so how can it sort of engage with them in a way that actually works if i had the absolute answer to that question i would be charging a lot of money as a consultant at the moment um 
I mean, that, that, that is, I mean, it is, it is the sort of, you know, $64,000 question is, is, is how we say something to people to get them to believe that a political party can make their lives better. Um, certainly one thing that we have been looking into, um, recently in terms of kind of the sort of messages that appeal to them um talking about sort of abstract things so you know just doesn't really doesn't really turn them on it's sort of rooting things in you know sort of we will help you pay your gas bill we you know or if we're talking about sort of something like leveling up it's sort of it, we want to talk about your particular town. We want to talk about the particular jobs that we might create. It's it's very much a sort of, you know, this these kind of lofty ideals has no resonance with this kind of voter. So it is about Labour being able to say to them in a way that makes sense to their lives that voting for us will make your life better. Yeah, so I, I was looking at the the Redshift report that Labour Together did, and um, very pithily it summarises the recommendations. But one line struck struck me, and it said that Labour needs to hold the line on cultural issues. And I wondered if you'd be able to explain what that means. So yeah, and as I said earlier, um, obviously after twenty nineteen, there was a huge amount of focus on the red wall and this sort of this red wall type voter um i think we we, we called him workington man which is a, a nod to another think tank who uh came up with that moniker uh onward um but and labor's a lot of labor's focus has been and absolutely rightly on that kind of voter and on reassuring that kind of voter after the Corbyn years that they could trust Labour again. So, um, and that, you know, you can see, you can see that in, in, in what Keir Starmer uh, has done. Um, I mean, I'd give a really good example of, um, of, of something that I think the Labour leadership handled really well, which was during the whole Black Lives Matter process uh, um, and protests when uh, the statue of Edward Colston went into the canal at Bristol. Um, Keir Starmer said that he thought that it was wrong to have a statue of a slave trader um, in a modern multicultural city, but that it shouldn't have been removed illegally and there should be a legal process to go through. And that was literally what the median voter thought about this issue. Um, they didn't think it was appropriate to have a slave trader, but neither did they approve um, at all of um, people pulling it down um, illegally. So it's that kind of thing that, and, and I, you know, you, you could have seen that under previous management, the Labour Party wouldn't have come up with that line. Um, so it's kind of about just understanding that the hyper-liberal instincts of most activists is just not where the median voter, anywhere near where the median voter is. And um, certainly that, that kind of, that sort of red wall patriotic left voter is actually quite even, even further um, along that kind of socially authoritarian axis than, than the median voter. But I mean, I don't, you know, 
there's there's got to be a line to be trod between um you know the the, the some of the some of some of the some some of where labor would want to be and and that patriotic left voter but i think it's there has been a lot of work done to get that get that balance right and the fact that so many of them are now coming back to labor they were they were the first people to really come back as the tories started getting into trouble just i think just demonstrates that that work has been done um so what we're saying is essentially don't be tempted what what we've done what we've done in terms of um in 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 terms of managing to appeal to that kind of voter just keep doing it don't 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 be tempted to veer from that line and given events the last few weeks i think there's a perception well evidence that labor is being more i don't know aggressive with the right, right word but on these kind of issues it, is that is that different from holding the line? Because it seems that you know, going back a couple of years ago with the Black Lives Matter stuff, that um, that handling was very uh, balanced, whereas the the sort of recent attack ads feel a bit more forthright. Um, it's a tricky one to ask you about because I know it's very controversial, but do you have any comment on that? I, I really honestly, I I don't know. I mean, everyone everyone always says oh these attack ads are, are awful they're terrible nobody likes them but they can be effective and um certainly the focus on crime i think as an issue is a is a good one um and you know obviously Keir's background as um ex-director of public prosecutions is something that he can really draw on having literally sort of <laughs> fought crime on a personal level for most for a large part of his of his professional life so certainly i think making that into an issue and 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 we know that you know that that people are really worried about it and we know that the tories did cut police numbers and we know that the criminal justice system is 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 horribly underfunded and that um, people are taking years and years to get justice. So I think it's absolutely right that Labour does focus on that. I, you know, I guess time will tell to see whether that was the right tactic. One of your other key findings is that Labour needs a bold economic programme that speaks to ordinary experiences of insecurity. So. Can you give us an idea of what you think a, a that sort of bold program will be? They'll, you know, if I had a pound for every time I heard someone saying that Starmer, Labour need to be bold, or this politician or this party they need to be bold, you know, then uh, I'd be yeah as rich as you would be as a consultant. But, so let's talk about the sort of the boldness of the program, and then I think, and it's relatedly why the politics of security is important. So. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when we were thinking about how Labour builds this coalition of really quite different voters, what we thought, what we came to the conclusion with the glue that could hold them together was a sense of insecurity. And I think in, in the report itself, there's a, there's a part where we go through, in fact, all of the clusters, even the sort of strongly... Tory ones and 
outlined where we thought that they felt insecure at this at this particular moment. So from, you know, an, an elderly person being frightened of crime to, um, you know, somebody in that activist left, left segment as a young person living in a city with high rental costs that they that they can't afford. So what we felt was that the age that we are living in is this age of insecurity. And this is very different from, for example, the uh, situation that um, uh, New Labour inherited in 1997, a huge economic boom, a huge amount of optimism. You know, it wasn't that long after the after after the end of the Cold War and and. Um, you know, every, every, everyone was was in a was in a sort of fairly optimistic. Everything's going to get better kind of kind of place. And and you know, I, I would argue it did get better, um, in the words of the song. But um, that's clearly not where we are at the moment. Um, you know, we've 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 had thirteen years of of austerity that I think you know even at the time most economists thought was a mistake and then on top of that we've had the two kind of exogenous shocks of the pandemic and then the war in Ukraine which um you know it's I I think we we we, we did some we did some polling for the report and we sort of asked uh people uh to select how they were feeling a, a, a about the world at the moment and so we offered a whole sort of range of of options from you know kind of pessimistic sad uh happy hopeful um and it's just just overwhelming people overwhelmingly people felt negative frightened sad angry um about the future and about where the world was going so we're clearly in a very very different place to the one um we were in the last time um or certainly before before um 1997 so and I guess our assessment was that that level of brokenness does require something bold. I know, and it's and it is. You're right. It's an absolutely overused word, um, but of course, you know, there's there's inspiration from across the Atlantic where Biden has been able to, you know, has has enacted some transformational um policy now there's there's huge you know there's huge differences between the us and the uk it helps if your currency is the reserve currency and and as we saw with liz truss you know you can't just ignore the financial markets and um borrow whatever you want but on the other hand um you know certainly economists i've spoken to all think that there is that you can borrow money from the certainly the financial markets won't be a constraint so long as what you're borrowing it for is to invest in something that will deliver economic growth and um essentially pay back what 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 you borrowed through that growth so that's kind of what we think um you know that the, the 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 challenge is now so severe that it does require some kind of really quite transformational economic um in in intervention well that's... sorry just sorry just coming on that one ever ever so quick is there a danger because what i see is a lot of you know people say what do, they don't know what kirstam stands for he's sort of vague and stuff like that is there a danger that of leaving it too late and the kind of the first impression being that 
he doesn't really stand for anything or don't know what he stands for or don't know what Labour stands for or they criticise but they don't say what they do instead and then by the time that they do really sort of go big on whatever the the offer is it's kind of, is there a danger it might be, just be a bit late and seen as maybe sort of cynical or opportunistic well I'd actually say the evidence of past elections is that the electorate now is is so volatile that just even within the space of a campaign you can make a huge amount of difference I mean 2017 being the ultimate example here of where Jeremy I mean you know <laughs> Funny as it may seem to anyone who pays the amount of attention to politics that that we all pay, um, but to think of this, but going into 2017, Jeremy Corbyn was a relatively unknown figure to a lot of people in the electorate. And between the space of the local elections in 2017, um, in May, and the general election, so the, the, the Labour got one of its worst results in local elections results in the last 10 years in those local election results in in um in may and then went from that literally six weeks later to the best election result i mean obviously still a loss but the best election result in um in in a decade um yeah literally within literally within a matter of weeks as the electorate um uh saw jeremy corbyn campaigning and they saw theresa may campaigning and um they knew which one they preferred um, you know, uh, to be to be clear, you know, Theresa May still ended up being less unpopular than uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But the narrowing that happened within the space of a few weeks, simply within the space of a political campaign, um, I think does does show that, um, you know, you can turn things around pretty quickly. With uh, given the Labour, uh, Labour has a. Well, I think we're, I was going to say 20 point lead in the polls. I think it might be a little bit less now, but that's a bit of a cautionary tale too. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, and it's, uh, I mean, in 2017 is a, a large part of that story is the Conservatives running a terrible, terrible campaign. Um, so, yeah, it is absolutely both a, there's, yeah, it's a it's a double-edged sword that the electorate is is that volatile. But no, I mean I think I think it does, it does, it, it demonstrates both that Labour really need to get this right. Um, because we could, you know, we could be in the in in the same position that the Tories were in 2017, or even I mean, a lot of people are sort of talking about 2010, when Cameron at one point was really quite far ahead of Gordon Brown and ended up uh only just getting a a minority uh, a, a coalition government with with the lib dems so there is definitely both uh a you know an element of of hope and an element of caution in that volatility absolutely so if it's all somewhat to play for um let's talk a bit about how you get to that bold vision or more specifically, how how within the Labour Party that can be built. And I'm particularly interested in the role that Labour Together plays in that. So maybe we could start with just a bit more about Labour Together as an organisation and what the, the purpose is. Sure. So Labour Together was founded a few years ago. It was um, uh, built by a group of MPs who basically just wanted to make Labour more electable. And it played a key role in the 2020 leadership election to support um, Keir Starmer being elected leader of the party. Um, 
So in more uh, more recently, we've relaunched it. I mean, so previously, it was it was it was rather it was a kind of rather internal and internally focused organisation focused a lot on the membership. Um, post the relaunch, we now see ourselves as much more outward looking. Um, we describe ourselves as a campaigning think tank. So um, there's obviously loads and loads of think tanks out there all doing, um, you know, great, great policy work. But the difference that we can bring is that we are very heavily focused on getting Labour elected. You know, it's in it's in the title of it's in the title of the of 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 the um, organisation. So we're kind of thinking about the politics of policy. Um, so we're not interested in policies which may be absolutely the perfect solution to this particular problem, but which we know just the public aren't are going to hate it um, or it's going to damage Labour in some way. We're just, you know, we're, we are very focused on um, the policies and the messages that will get Labour into power. I, I find that really interesting because the people say policy as this big catch-all. And of course, sometimes what you mean is some actual very specific bit of regulation or legislation or funding programme. But sometimes you're telling a story. And it, it sounds yeah. like what Labour Together are doing is more using ideas about how the world we rather the world be to, to tell a certain story about values. Is that is that how you think about it? Yeah, no, I mean, there, there is there is actual there is there is policy in there as well, as as well as narrative. But yeah, we very much see ourselves as always wanting to combine the policy and the narrative rather than just think about as as many academics and other think tanks do just think about the policy. And, and we, we, we work really closely with quite a lot of those think tanks and with academics. But yeah, we are all about packaging up that kind of policy into a narrative that we think will appeal to uh, the voters that Labour needs to win. Now, as you know, with this podcast, we're all about um, bringing people together and building bridges. And I, I recall reading a bit about Labour together maybe three or four months ago, maybe a bit longer than that, so November time. Um, and given the name and uh, the article I was reading Labour List was talking about the role of the organisation in building bridges between different bits of the party. Um, is is that still something that's that's worked on, and and how and how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean we are the we have shifted the focus um, from being entire almost entirely internally focused to thinking more about about uh, about how the Labour Party gets elected rather than necessarily um, so much about the membership. I mean, it was founded at a particular time when Labour was very, very divided and it was and it was it could be quite an unpleasant place to be. Um, largely, um, you know, there, there, there are no challenges to, to Keir's leadership. It is a much more unified and um yeah, a much a, 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 you know, the 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 fact that members can see that we are doing much much better in the polls is something that is motivating and is something that is just inherently unifying. So we see ourselves less as having to manage that process and now just think about how we secure that election win. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. Um, 
to play devil's advocate for me so i think you as i said earlier i'm someone who joined since the since keir Starmer took over as leader I'm, I'm sort of in that political space but people to or my friends who are more left-wing in the labor party will say oh we feel a bit like our voices are are not getting heard do you how, how do you respond to that well i would say you know if you the point of joining a political party is to get into power. There are plenty of organisations that people can join and do, um, which are pressure groups, which are lobby groups, which are and often unbelievably effective and, and often the catalysts for some really huge changes in, in society. But that's a different thing from a political party whose aim is to get people elected into parliament or into local government, wherever it is, so that they can make a difference. So, and, you know, that, that, that is what it's, what it's, what it's there to do. And, and of course, you know, nobody is always going to agree with everything that the leadership does. Um, because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a large party. There's always going to be a, a huge range of views within it. And, you know, the other the other thing is, I think I noted earlier, the membership and this is true equally of the Tory party, the membership of a political party is always going to be somewhat distant from even the median voter for that party, let alone the median voter in the country. So there's probably always going to be a bit of. Oh, why? What? I mean, you know, and, and as I said, in, as I said very, uh, uh, at the beginning, I was that person very much in in um, in under New Labour who was like, well, why are they doing that? I don't understand why they're doing that. They're supposed to be progressives. They're supposed to be this. And actually, it was really only faced with that 2015 election defeat that I sort of started thinking, actually, of course, that's why they have to do that, because ultimately the swing voter, the median voter is not me. Um, and that's who and that's who we need to, to to win over if we're actually going to get into power and be able to deliver all the nice stuff that that, that I want. Yes, I mean, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate, but I certainly certainly agree with that. I suppose the flip side is by focusing the way you are, you're able to advance and, and influence the way Labour is going in a way that perhaps you're not if you're constantly triangulating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where do you think that the the centre ground is within the Labour Party. So I was just looking on the Labour Together website and there's a bit of a range, um, including Bridget Phillips and uh, Wes Street and um, Rachel Reeves, Jim McMahon, Lisa Nandy, who are in the shadow cabinet. And I would say can be seen as sort of broadly on for those people who don't know the Labour Party factions, this might mean slightly less, but sort of soft left. So around the sort of politics of Ed Miliband, but then you also have, um, include perhaps Jim McMahon slightly more towards the sort of the more moderate centrist end, but then also John Crudders, who's seen as taking some of his inspiration from, from Tony Benn. So do you think it's a matter of um taking the the sort of broad swathes of opinion within the Labour Party or focusing on where the sort of the centre ground is within the Labour Party and the sort of Labour movement? I think where we would 
see ourselves as is is trying not to be too obsessed with factions within the Labour Party and thinking more about the voter outside the Labour Party. So I think you know it's it was founded by people who who wanted a Labour government essentially. So and and or who yes for whom that was a priority over um purist ideology so that's kind of what links all of those people together and that was the sort of founding um ethos of labor together so yeah i mean i'd 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 say that our focus is not is not particularly sort of which particular faction of the labor party we're we're supporting it is it is about looking outwards and it is about trying to find um trying to to identify and win over the voters that we need to put us into power Let's let's finish by talking about those voters then, and your insights on uh, politics and the prospects. So obviously, you know, you want to see Labour do fantastically, but you're also a you know a data analyst, and you will have some idea of what you think is going to happen. Obviously, predicting politics is a mug's game. <laughs> mugs. Well, apart from for for you, it, it appears. <laughs> even a stopped clock and all of that but, <laughs> so so tell us about some of the prospects Labour's, Tories, Lib Dems, Greens, others you know we've got locals coming up soon there's a general coming up and beyond that so let's talk about sort of um, however you want to tackle it really sort of politics and prospects of that going forward well obviously we've had a rather roller coaster um last 12 months um and you know we've seen just some extraordinary poll leads for labor in the wake of the liz truss um quasi quarting disaster um it's clear that the polls have narrowed since then um you know, at, at one point it did appear that the Tory party was waking up every morning and deciding to shoot itself in the foot again and, and expecting that to to continue indefinitely was probably a bit optimistic from our point of view. Um, so, yes, we have seen, we had, you know, Rishi Sunak is what he is. He is, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I have my views, but um, he has presented himself in the last few weeks as this kind of pragmatic problem solver that someone who's sort of taken who is you know very unlike his two immediate predecessors is a serious sober hard-working um person who is gradually working his way through the problems that that he has inherited and clearly that's that is that is cutting through to to some people so you've seen the polls narrow from the Labour had about a 23% lead at the end of January and it's now about 17% on average and that appears to be mostly um Tory vote 2019 Tory voters who had moved to don't know um deciding that it was safe to go back in the water, as it were, um, under Rishi Sunak and say that they're going to vote um, Conservative again. What it does appear, at least at the moment, is that the people who made the decision to switch to Labour altogether um, don't seem to be moving back in in large numbers, which is obviously 
good from our point of view. I think the other interesting thing about Rishi Sunak, though, is that he, whilst his his ratings outperform those of the Tory party, the people that tend to like him are the kind of Tory remainery type. So you're sort of blue wally um, type people. But to be honest, they are, you know, uh, uh, mo most of them have, have decided to abandon the Conservative Party anyway. And even those that haven't, they're sort of electorally distributed in a way that's not particularly helpful. So how far his personal ratings um, will be able to turn their fortunes around, I, I, I don't know. But what is interesting, and sort of going back to our segmentation, is that it's really clear what their strategy is going to be, that it's that it's going to be um, to kind of target those middle of the road voters by um, uh, looking economically competent by sort of promising like, you know, but by the time they'll, they'll be hoping by the time the general election that inflation has fallen, that the economy is looking better, that public services might have improved a bit. Um, so they will be hoping, hoping that Stevenage woman, having noticed some real improvement in her life, will think, well, OK, uh you know maybe maybe i'll give them maybe i'll give them another chance why would i risk voting for somebody else and then on the other hand clearly they are trying to shore up their socially conservative base and presumably um try to win back um the patriotic left through then their targeting um of the small boats crisis and and the focus on on immigration so i mean you know it's it's a sound strategy given where that they given where they are given you know where the economy is i think it's probably the best strategy that they can come up with and it's partly why we chose those two segments as our target ones because we think that those are exactly the segments that the tories are going to are going to go for as well um and yes, I mean, the local elections will be interesting. Um, you know, it's it's always good to see, especially in the light of previous polling disasters, whether the polls look like they're right, whether they will confirm that. Um, I, I would expect they 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 probably will. The by-elections that we've had seem to confirm that the polling isn't completely awry at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a very everything is very volatile these elector the, the electorate is very volatile things can change very very quickly and you know from our point of view we need labor to be in the absolute best position it can put itself in because we don't know what's going to happen and we do know now that the tory party is under much more serious management than it has been for quite some time brilliant well look thank you so much for uh taking your time out of your evening to, to take us through that because I've found that really really interesting so yeah thank you so much Christopher Cooper for coming on again and uh, spending the time with us my pleasure brilliant and as always Steve thank you for joining us thanks Martin and that was really enjoyable Christopher thanks again for coming on and thank no you problem. very much and thank you very much for listening this has been the No Man's Land podcast and goodbye <laughs>